Verses 37 through 39 will be our text this morning. A short passage, but uh, one that requires some foundational support here. Not that God's word needs support, it's just for us to understand what is going on in this particular passage. Of course, throughout chapter 7, we have seen Jesus now in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and um, teaching in the synagogue. Halfway through the week of the feast, and now we come to the last day of the feast. And it is very significant what Jesus does in this particular passage. He has been making it very clear who he is to the Jewish people in the temple. He had been making it very clear who he was in all of his ministry in the Galilee up in in the north and also uh, down in, in, in Jerusalem and Judea. And as we've noticed over the last few weeks, the things that Jesus has been saying has has caused a lot of um, disruption among the Jewish people, among his own people. And the leadership of the Jews consider him to be a tremendous threat, for many people were beginning to believe and follow the Lord. But here they were on the last day of this feast, and Jesus did something quite powerful. On a day when everyone is actually having a tremendous time, because the Feast of Tabernacles was, and even is still today, one of their most joyous feasts. And we read in verses 37 through 39 what it is that Jesus did. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Shall we pray? Father, it is our desire today that you would pour out your Spirit even now upon us. Who desire so much to know, Lord, your Word. That we might rightly divide it and rightly learn it. Not only for our understanding, but also, Lord for our application. We surrender, Lord, ourselves to you and to your spirit as you speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This was a time of so many divided opinions about Jesus. It is in this passage that he makes it quite clear using the very symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles and the ceremonies which the people gladly participated in and 
on the last day of the feast, he makes it clear who he is. Proclaiming to one and all an invitation and a promise. He stands in the midst of the people as an uninvited preacher and he cries out, shouting loudly and emphatically so that all might hear and heed. Jesus has cried out this way before, recorded even in this very same chapter. If you look, go back to verses 28 and 29, where it says, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught. And remember that when we looked at that word cried there in the, in the, uh, in the Greek, it, it was a very strong, emphatic shout to the top of his lungs. And it's the very same word, and we, we notice that there had been another word for cry that was different. But here, it's the same word as in verse, uh, as, as the passage we read earlier, but this is, uh, this is the same word. Then cried, shouting emphatically in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me, and you know whence I, can, whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not, but I know him. Now again, he's saying this as loud as he can inside the temple. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. But now on the last day of the feast, the Messiah of Israel stands and cries out. Now again, all of these words are very significant because most of the rabbis, and I'm sure that Jesus, when he was within the temple, sat to preach, sat to teach, sat as he taught the word of God to the people. But here he stands, and the standing is, is a, a preparation for action. More than just teaching, now this is a declaration of truth. And he cries out with that loud, emphatic voice. And he says to them, in effect, this is what he says, If you're thirsty, then come to me. The condition for this invitation is an awareness of thirst. You see, this is why he said, if any man thirst, if you're thirsty, be aware of that, and you certainly are aware of it, right? Whenever we get thirsty, we're aware of it. And Jesus said, in effect, I'm calling you to recognize and become aware of your inner thirst. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. We as well are to consider that there is no lasting earthly satisfaction. No lasting earthly satisfaction. Whether it be in marriage or family and wealth, and you might say, what? No, no, think about it. These are all the earthly things that we need to consider. Even things that we hold dear. And again, marriage, family, wealth, fame, philosophical or religious enlightenment, travel, athletics, politics, academic achievement, nothing completely satisfies. Nothing satisfies. Any satisfaction or significance that we gain in our earthly pursuits, they quickly fade and, and become a vague memory if, if remembered at all. 
And while there are certainly for everyone happy events along the way, and sometimes those unexpected moments of pure delight, those moments are fleeting. And we can never go back in time to relive them and recapture the sensation. It'll never be the same. What we find out in all of this is that we are all thirsty people. We're all thirsty people. We all long for a deep satisfaction. The kind that makes us feel alive inside. The kind that enriches us. King Solomon, son of David, the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, after expounding on a season and purpose for everything under heaven. I'm sure you all are familiar with that passage at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. After this, he writes these words. He begins in verse 11 by saying, He has made everything beautiful in his time. And isn't that a wonderful thing to know about our God? That he has made everything beautiful in his time. Then he says, also, he has set the world in their heart. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. For here in, in the King James, it says, he hath set the world in their heart. The word world here is the, the Hebrew word olam. And the word olam is the word that we use for eternity. And when you consider that word in, 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 the, in respect to the world, I mean, this is, this is the world of eternity, in other words. Which we in the flesh don't, don't understand fully because we're finite beings. So he says, also he has set the world or eternity in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. In respect, again, to that which is under heaven. To the many who just live from day to day, paycheck to paycheck, step by step, night to day, day to night. And this is all we see, this is all we know of life. He goes on to say in verse 12, I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. What level do we think do we achieve in, in, in life without God and without the things of God and without the things that are eternal in this life? Verse 13, he says, And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. When I read this particular verse of Scripture, I, I, I focused on, on the very thought that that. God pours out very general grace to all who live on this earth, both believer and unbeliever when you think about it. And everything that everyone has is a gift. It rains upon the righteous and the unrighteous. So that every man should eat and drink, enjoy the good of his labor, it's the gift of God. What God gives us when we, when we have the ability to work and to feed our families and clothe them and, and shelter them. 
But then he says in verse 14, and I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. See, so now we come back to this issue of eternity. We come back to the, the you know, that chasm between man in his, in, his, in his natural sense and God who is eternal. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. In other words, you can't add anything to what God does, and you can't take away anything of what God does. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. And everything that God does, he does that men would see him, know him, honor him, praise him, and submit to him. That which has been is now. And that which is to be has already been, and God requireth that which is past. For those who study prophecy, this is a passage that says this, this is, is really the pattern of prophecy, if you will. That which has been is now. The things that we have read about in, in the Old Testament scriptures, a lot of that is now. And notice, and that which is to be has already been. We talk about near fulfillment of prophecy and far fulfillment of the same prophecy. Something happens to Israel in the, in the Old Testament and we know that it's pointing to happening again in the near future for us. So here is the, the pattern of prophecy. But then he says, and God requires that which is past. And so this passage makes it clear that mankind has a longing. And a desire to know their significance in light of God's providential plans beyond what he hears, says, and does in this temporal life. But Solomon adds that man under heaven cannot know the eternal and sovereign works of God. But what God does, he does without variation and eternally. And what he requires of man in response is fear, is reverence, respect, and humble submission. So while there is that desire... To know beyond what we know in this life, we have to come to him. And we have to believe in him and we have to honor him. So now the Apostle John, getting back to our text. And by the way, let me say that in the feast, uh, in the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, which I'll talk about in a moment, there are certain scriptures that are read. The book of Ecclesiastes is read midway through the week. The whole of the book of Ecclesiastes is read in, in the uh, temple or synagogue. In this case, it's the synagogue now. So now the Apostle John points out specifically that this event that is happening here in John chapter 7 took place on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I want to make reference to the fact that not too long ago I did a, a series of studies on, on the feast, all the feasts of Israel, the seven feasts of Israel from Leviticus 23, and I would encourage you at some point that you get a chance to listen to all of those. Uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of uh, Tabernacles is, is the seventh of them, and uh, it's called the Feast of Booths, booths like tents, temporary structures. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering, and in Hebrew it is Chag Hasukot. Hag Hasukot. It is a seven-day festival celebrated from the 15th to the 21st day of Tishri, the month of Tishri, which for us is September, October. In other words, the last part of September, early part of October. That's, 
that's the, uh, uh, the time frame. And it came with these biblical requirements, just as all of the festivals of, of the Lord that are given to us in Leviticus 23 have. They have certain biblical requirements. If you'll turn to Leviticus for just a moment, and by the way, this is very important for us to understand what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 7 by understanding the Feast of Tabernacles now. We didn't bring it up before, but we, we need to bring it up today. In Leviticus chapter uh, 23, verse 39, it says, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Let's say the Sabbath was, was the day before. In other words, uh, on a Friday night, Saturday morning. And uh, the 15th of Tishri would fall on, on, on the next day. Then there'd be another Sabbath. Okay, so you get the, you get the picture. The Sabbath would then be uh, celebrated again. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Uh, so notice the eighth day. And so we're dealing with the seven days of, of this particular feast. Verse 40. And you shall take uh, you... On the first day, the, the, the boughs of goodly trees, branches of uh, palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So they were to take these uh, branches from, from uh, uh, palm trees and willows and, and whatnot, and they would tie them together uh, with, uh, uh, with palm. And they, they would rejoice, it says, before the Lord your God seven days. So this, this was a rejoicing kind of festival. There was a lot of rejoicing, and it still is to this day. And you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. A statute forever doesn't mean, you know, you, you end it whenever you want. No, it's something that is to be continually celebrated always. And uh, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. So even today in Israel, on, on the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, they build these little huts up against their houses, and they actually go out, the families will go out and live inside of these little huts for seven days. But they're so close to home that they'll go in and out from time to time. You know, they don't all stay out there and do everything kind of desert-like. But uh, they do. They'll go out there, you know, and the kids love it, and, the, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a family thing, okay? Still celebrated today. Verse 43 that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the booths are, the, are quickly thrown together shelters, commemorate the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and memorialize God's provision of shelter for the Israelites in the wilderness as well as the temporary nature of those shelters with a view to a more permanent dwelling in the promised land. So the booze were to remind them, this isn't all, this isn't, we're, this isn't it. We're still moving toward the promised land, and when we get there, it's a more permanent place. There was, gonna, there was already a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant. There would be a more permanent place where? In Jerusalem. There's a, there's a temporary place here on this earth. We are going through things temporarily on this earth. This is why we're told we are citizens not of, he not of earth, but of heaven. So this is just, you know, we're just passing through. There is a permanent home for us. So this, this is the, the same idea. 
And as verse 40 of Leviticus 23 states, they were also to celebrate with the lulav. Lulav is, is the myrtle and willow branches tied together with a palm frond, you know, one of the uh, branches of the palm. And uh, then they would also celebrate with a citron, which is a particular citrus fruit, uh, to represent the fruitfulness and the beauty of the promised land. So they would have the branches in the right hand and the fruit in the left hand. And this is how they, they went around and on that day, especially on, on something that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Because by the time of Jesus, various temple ceremonies had been added to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the key one being what was called the pouring out of the water. The pouring out of the water. On each of the seven days, the priests marched in procession down uh, the Temple Mount to the Kidron Valley and the Pool of Siloam. This would be on the south side of, of the city. And they would go down to the Pool of Siloam where they filled uh, a, a golden flask. One, one priest would do it. In some cases, many, uh, many of the priests would all, all take certain flasks with them and fill those, those uh, buckets or flasks with, with about three pints of water. As a, and, and while they were doing this, there was a choir that was chanting Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. But I want to I add to that verse 2 as we read it. And this is what they would sing, actually, as they were getting the water. Uh, Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He, is, he also is become my salvation. Now, this is very interesting because that's, the name, that's really the name of Jesus, isn't it? The Lord, my salvation. Yehoshua in the Hebrew. Shortened, shortened to Yeshua, and uh, then transliterated to Jesus. His name means the Lord is my salvation. So then in verse 3 is what they sang when they began to, grab, uh, uh, to take the water. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then the water was carried back up the hill to what was called the water gate, followed by crowds carrying the, the lulav, the, the branches, in memory of the wilderness booths and the citron, in memory of the harvest. For indeed, this was, a, this was a celebration of the second harvest. And the second harvest, of course, being the, the you know, the summer, uh, the, um, the fall harvest, you know, the, the gathering uh, after, the, uh, after the summer. So as they ascended the 15 steps into the temple compound, they sang the 15 songs of ascent, which is Psalms 120 to 134. On each step, they would sing one song, and then they would go to the next step, and then they would sing another song, and they would sing one psalm on each step in succession. And then they proceeded to the altar of sacrifice where they poured out the water into the channel at the southwest corner of the altar, which drew away the blood of the sacrifices. Tremendous picture here. Because in all of this, we see something of, of our Messiah, who was called the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, and his blood would be shed for us. And all along, they were pouring blood on the altar of sacrifice. And that represented, that was the picture, the type of Jesus' blood. 
And here's Jesus seeing all of this, being there, watching them pour out the water. And this, by the way, on the seventh day, the last day of the feast, it has been said that they did this actually seven times. They did it seven times, seven processions, seven outpourings, and the people were rejoicing. The pouring out of the water was followed by 12 trumpet blasts and tremendous rejoicing. The rabbis interpreted the pouring out of the water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit on Israel in the last days before Messiah comes. This is how they interpret, the, in other words, the, the rabbis. It was in response to the pouring out of the water, what is called nisuch mayim. Mayim, by the way, in Hebrew is water, okay? Mayim, waters, or water. Nisuch mayim, the pouring out of the water. In response to that is when Jesus cries out. Now you can realize a, a, a very practical reason why he has to cry out. Because all the people are just rejoicing. And there's all kinds of, of noise going on. And in verse 37 again, when we come back to our text, in the last day. And by the way, there's, there's prophetic significance to even that statement. For how often do we read when we, when we study prophecy the phrase, the last day? Or in the last days. <clears throat> or in the latter times. But here specifically in the last day. That great day of the feast. Jesus stood and cried saying. If any man thirst. Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. As the scripture has said. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now there are some commentators who, who believe this was actually on the eighth day. The second Sabbath of the feast when there was a holy convocation. In other words, they would either be in synagogue or they would be in the temple. Having services or even in their home. But the procession with the water was seven days. So they're saying, well, here was the eighth day, and no water was poured out. No water was poured out. And that's, of course, true. But the impact, and this is what we need to understand here, is that the impact of what Jesus did and said would be more profound on the seventh day, which is the last day of the feast. And so think about this for a moment. If this was done right when the water had been poured out completely. Now the picture would be clear. No more water is poured out. And the people would still be thirsty. You can't get that picture if it's the eighth day and no water is being poured out. I mean... Technically, you could say, well, there's no water poured out, so you're going to be thirsty. But where would Jesus be? And why would he be shouting? 
He's shouting because all the people are seeing this happen because they were part of the, they were part of the ceremony. They were part of the, of the ritual that was going on. And here's the thing about that. How many people today go to church, follow certain rituals, do certain things, but they're still thirsty and they're still empty because they don't understand what's being done. Or they don't see that it is applicable in some way. It's just what we do. We've always done it. You know why? No, but we've always done it. And so here the Lord is shouting out. The water's empty. The, 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 the pitcher or the flask is, is empty. And Jesus cries out. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Because the water supply that I'm going to give you is not going to run out. The Lord is telling them that if they want to satisfy that thirst in their souls, because wouldn't it eventually be that this is, this is all about something that is spiritual? They need to take him into their lives. They need to take him into their lives. And how many of these people may have been there on that day at the end of chapter 6 when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Speaking spiritually, of course, and symbolically, that they walked away. And now he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. By the way, Jesus knew all the responses. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew this wasn't a surprise to him. It had to be done. He's fulfilling scripture, you see. Nothing, and, and this is what we need to learn from all of this, is that nothing or no one can satisfy a thirsty soul like Jesus. No one can. And, 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 and the people that are hearing him knew the, the, the word of God. I mean, they knew the passages that talked about these things. For example, uh, Isaiah 44, verse 3, where it says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's going to pour out the water. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon thine offering. That's why I've come. Only the Messiah of Israel can do this. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And you think, how do you do that? How do you buy without? What that is, what that is inferring is that, that the, there's a price to pay and the price has been paid. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? 
Does this not sound like the world today? And even those who profess a belief in Christ, but yet they continue to, to, to spend money for those things that are not going to satisfy? That's what the whole point is here. And your labor that for, for that which satisfies not, hearken diligently unto me, and, ye, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here in your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Is this not the Messiah of Israel who is saying, if anyone is thirsty, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. There is something else to consider about the timing of the outpouring of the water at the altar of sacrifice. When the pitcher or the flask reached the altar, the water was poured out over the altar as an offering to God. And while this was done, the people waved the palm branches and they recited the words of Psalm 118, verse 25. This is what they sang, as it were. They said, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. They're crying out. They're reading the scripture. They're singing the scripture, but they're saying, send salvation now and your provision now. And Jesus is standing there saying, here I am. Your salvation. Your prosperity. In other words, your abundance is Christ. That's our abundance today as believers in Jesus Christ. He is our prosperity. It isn't about what we get in this life. It's all going to burn. I can tell you this. If God has blessed you, praise the Lord. Use it for his glory and honor and praise. But your greatest treasure is the Lord himself. He's our prosperity. And what Jesus said that day was not a reference to a single verse of Scripture, but in fact, what he was saying was to a general theme of several Old Testament passages, some which we've already referred to, but to others as well. For example, Isaiah 58, verse 11, And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought. Listen to that. Satisfy your soul in drought. What do, we for, what do we forecast right now when we're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ? We are living today in perilous times. We are living in times that the, the, the Apostle Paul and John and all the apostles had, had told us, listen, they're going to happen. They're going to happen, and they're happening now. Israel's back in the land. This was a, a, a key verse for us to understand that we're living in the last days. All of these things are saying, listen, times are going to get tough. They're tough already for some. They're tougher still for many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. But the point of the matter is that the Lord says, I'm going to guide thee and I'm going to satisfy you even when there is nothing. 
And he says, and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. I'll keep you alive. What about Daniel and his, and his, and his friends when they arrived in Babylon? And they were being forced to eat the, the, the king's table. And they said, we're not going to eat it. We'll eat what we will eat, but we're not going to eat that. And they, they let him do it. And they got fatter on practically nothing. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, like, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. That's our God. He doesn't fail us when we need his blessing. Ezekiel 47 verse 1 says, Afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under uh, from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Water's coming from nowhere in a sense, you know, for us because, you know, we don't see it, we wouldn't see it. But they would come and the waters came abundantly. The start of the, uh, the beginning of the Jordan River up in Caesarea Philippi. You wouldn't know where it comes from. The source, of course, is Mount Hermon and the water that would come out of of Mount Hermon from the north. But as it comes down to this one place, out of the ground comes all this water and now you have the Jordan River and then eventually, of course, it goes into the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's a lot of water. From where? I don't know. It just comes out of the ground. But what is that saying to us about God and and His provision? It's never ending. Joel chapter 3 verse 8, the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass, excuse me, it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Listen, this of course speaking of of the... uh, of the millennial kingdom, as it were, but nonetheless, I mean, there's waters that are prepared now to come that God Himself is going to provide. When too many people are trying to find ways of providing for themselves or trying to find, uh, you know, find someone that can provide for them, listen, let God be your provision. And has He not already provided us the greatest provision in Jesus Christ Himself? Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A, a fountain. Jesus is our fountain. He's cleansed us of our sins with his very own blood. But there will be a fountain in that day when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and people realize their sin and there's still. There is still. Mercy and grace. Later on in Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9, it says, And it shall be in that day, in that day, that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In the summer and in the winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. One Lord. Folks, then, now, before, after, there's only one Lord. And there's only one name. And his name is Jesus. Yeshua. As Israel in the wilderness drank from the life-giving stream, 
that flowed from the stricken and split rock. By the way, let me talk about that very quickly. Because this also plays a great part in our understanding of what Jesus did on that day. Because it pertains to water. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, there were two times where God had spoken to Moses and told Moses. The first time he said, listen, you go. There's a rock and you go and you strike that rock. And out of that rock, water will come. There was a time when the people were wanting water and needing water and you brought us out here to die of thirst and whatnot. Anyway, so strike the rock. The picture, strike the rock. Who is our rock? Jesus. Who is smitten for us? Jesus. Who died for us? Jesus. This is a picture of striking the Messiah and water. See, the water won't come unless you strike him. The blessing of the Lord doesn't come unless Jesus dies on the cross. We have salvation because Jesus died. We needed him to die. Got the picture? So later on, you know, again, there's, okay, you know, Moses is now starting to get frustrated and angry because of the people and whatnot. And God says to him, now go to the rock. Take your rod, go to the rock, and speak to the rock. Because you see, you only have to strike the rock once. But what did he do? He struck it again. Now, because of God's mercy and grace, what happened? Water came. But because he disobeyed God, Moses was told that he would not enter in to the promised land. But this was another great picture for us. Because eventually Moses gets into the promised land. He didn't sneak in, you know, he's not like, you know, a party crasher. But Moses is actually invited there. By whom? Jesus. Where? In the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. And he appears with Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Go back. So Moses is able to see, but he doesn't go in. And, and this is a picture of the law. This is to draw us to understand that the law can only get us so far. Because who then leads the children of Israel into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua. Yehoshua. Yeshua. The picture and type of Jesus. Who leads us into eternal life. And, and the beginning of the gospel of John tells us that. The law came through Moses. But grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And why do I bring this up? Because Israel drank from that rock. They drank from the rock. From the life-giving stream that flowed from the stricken and split rock. So Christ offers as they did. He's now offering those who believe in him an ever-flowing, never-failing, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching inner supply of living water. And when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, go back to chapter 4. He speaks to the woman at the well, a well that would meet her every need. Jesus is the well. Jesus is the well of living water. 
So here now in, verse, in chapter 7, he spoke to the throngs referring to the Holy Spirit as a river of living water. The, the rabbis were saying, well, this is a type of something that's going to come, you know, when the Messiah, before the Messiah comes. Messiah's there, you see. He spoke to the throngs referring to the Holy Spirit as a river of living water. Indeed, to rivers of living water, an overflowing supply able to minister to the needs of others. And so we see there in verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But uh, John then comments, This spake he of the Spirit, which they, they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now John, Writing this gospel some 50 years after this event tells, Jesus was speak, uh, or tells us that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit that was to be given on the day of Pentecost. Not, not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as I'll talk about in just a moment, but the empowering, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now remember that after the resurrection of Jesus, we see Jesus appear to his men, to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, this is what we read. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. The Ruach. Ruach is Hebrew for the spirit, the breath. He breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, they are the New Testament saints as the Holy Spirit has come inside of them. But then in the Gospel of Luke, as we begin to add the understanding of, of all of the scriptures here, in Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus said, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So now there was an indwelling when Jesus breathed on him. But then he says, but I send you the promise of my Father upon you. Wait, tarry in Jerusalem. Wait until you be endued with power. They couldn't go to Jerusalem and try to uh, make this happen. Right? I mean... Some, we, we hear about some churches, you know, try to make you speak in tongues, you know. Uh, start off with, you know, just start off with uh, making sounds. Where does it say that in the scriptures, man? When, when the Spirit came upon them, they started speaking. Batteries came included. They just started speaking. But the point is, they were to wait. And then lastly, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We know what happens there. 
but you shall receive power, Jesus said to them. Before he ascends into heaven, he says to them, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now that is said in Acts 1 verse 8. Now in Acts chapter 2, listen. On the day of Pentecost, The first harvest, the summer harvest. On the day of Pentecost, we see the fulfillment of this promise as the believers are empowered to be witnesses of Yeshua, of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer in power, and thus we are not just to be vessels that contain God, but vessels from which God can flow through and touch the lives of others. In other words, we are to be living water, not stagnant ponds. Living water. Out of your belly shall flow rivers, torrents of living water. William Temple put it this way. He said, no one can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and keep that spirit to himself. Where the spirit is, he flows forth. If there is no flowing forth, he's not there. And I think it's so important for us as we prepare to close this service today that we cry out to God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And to keep filling us. You know, we sometimes get this mindset that, oh, you know, yeah, I already received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and yet, when you read of, of, the, of, the, of the work of the Spirit in the church, it is a continual, it is a continual flowing. And it is a continual being filled. Because literally it tells us, be ye being filled. Literally, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's no way that I want to shut that off. Now, sometimes by our lives or actions, we may at times, you know, step on the hose, as it were. You know, what happens when you step on the hose? You know, it kind of backs up a little bit. But let's not step on the hose as it does, you know, wanting to flow with, through us, you know, with, with the power of His Holy Spirit. In these last days, we need everything that God has already provided for us. And the one thing that he's provided for us that we need to ask every day is, Lord, fill me with your spirit because I am a, an earthen vessel that your, your word tells me. And as an earthen vessel, I leak. I need you to keep filling me with your spirit. See, the good thing is there's... there's, there's uh, there's always a supply. He never runs out. Isn't it great that we don't have to ration the Holy Spirit? This coming summer, you know, you can only water your yard every other day. No wonder we're so brown around here. Well, I say brown, I mean. 
but with the Lord, never-ending, never-ending supply of His presence, of His power, of His mercies, of His grace, of His power and the Holy Spirit. Let's not stop asking. Ask today, Lord, Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Baptize me with your Spirit. And then, Lord, don't just fill me, use me. Let's expend ourselves every day with what God gives us so that the next day with His mercies, which are new every morning, and, he, and His compassions that never fail, and He fills us once again, we can go out and serve Him once again with the same Spirit and the same flow. Until the day that Jesus comes. Which, by the way, can be at any moment. So let's be ready. Let's get out of the habit of saying, well, you know, I'd like for the Lord to come, but you know, tomorrow there's this really neat uh, concert or something. <laughs> hey, there's a better concert in heaven when you get there. And it's, and it's free. It's already been paid for. I mean, all these people paying $100 tickets, man, to go hear somebody, that, you know, the, you know, Play, been playing songs for a thousand years, you know. <laughs> Rolling Stones, by the way, I'm talking about them. And they'll pay all kinds of money to go see those guys, man. Don't, don't pay your money to see them, man. The, the price for admission's already been paid for an eternal concert. The choirs of heaven singing. And then you can sing along with them and not be afraid about what you sound like because you're going to sound just as good as everybody else. You might not hear that here, but up there you will. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us this morning together to hear your word. We ask that you will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, continue, Lord, to fill us to overflowing. Because with your spirit, Lord, we have wisdom to understand your word. With your spirit, we have wisdom to, uh, to discern the spirits. We have wisdom, Lord, to, to know what and when and how to do the things you would have us to do. And Lord, we want to be always just be where you want us to be. We want to be where you are, and we want to do what you want us to do. So Father, today we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. And continue, Lord, to let that Spirit flow in and through us, so that there is this constant moving of your waters within us, and, and out to those who need you. Because that is the main thing, to be your witnesses in every place we go and whatever we do, that people will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved and ready to go home to be with Him forever. So help us in understanding these things. Help us to understand that cry of Jesus to have people realize who He is. Well, if we've come to realize who He is today, I pray, Father, that You will speak to those hearts be right with you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand?